0: Italia ninety one day at a time day eighteen the day after the night before Kieran O'Hara.
1: What a Sarah Rob two evening kickoffs. Oh,
0: what an evening it was too. These are the great days, Billy Joe Patton, where your team are still in the competition and you can watch the other teams squirm and enjoy it.
2: Yeah, the best round of any World Cup when there's uh, the knockout football starts the real the real matches start and there's uh, so many dreams are still alive and. Even sometimes I think at this stage in a tournament, you get more open games because the closer and closer you get to the final, sometimes it becomes, players seem to become more paralyzed with the fear fear of losing as opposed to going out there and trying to achieve something.
0: Today's game, Spain and Yugoslavia and England and Belgium rounded off the tournament I went into today, as we know, expecting a Belgium victory. So this is a, a solemn day for myself as well. Uh, after them lighting up the tournament, they are to exit it at this stage. Oh, we
1: someone's were... told you now, Rob, yeah?
0: Yeah, well, I've, I mean, the, the premise is we're, we're talking after watching the game. So I, I think I think at this stage, I need to let the whole Belgium I don't know, I
1: England just go. thought you were going <laughs> to let a whole parallel World Cup pass you by.
0: Seriously, I'm thinking of re-watching Shifo games uh, right, right through now, like just some of the qualifiers for the next tournament. <laughs> I just miss him already. Anyways, enough of that. Our guest today from Second Captains to watch a game with us and uh, just tell uh, to go back in time and think back to his memories from Italian 90, Ciarán Murphy.
3: Hey Rob, how are you? Hey Ciarán, what's the crack, Billy Joe, how are you all? All good. All good.
0: Memories of Italian ninety. You've been. Uh, I know you had George Hamilton on uh, on a great podcast this week, uh, Kieran. You've been looking back as everyone is right now. So we probably got you at the right time. Although you didn't expect to have to deep dive into one specific game, did you?
3: <laughs> well, I mean, if, if if I was going to end up watching one game from Italian ninety in full, I, I'd have to say that I would have offered long odds on Yugoslavia, Spain, in the round of sixteen. To be honest, but here we are, Rob. Here we are. These are the things that I do for uh, I do for you, Rob can you imagine uh, you know, watching 51 sorry
0: can you imagine watching 51
3: of them in the space <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I don't i don't even want to to be honest but here we are no it was um yeah we we spoke to george last week on our podcast about ireland romania and that's obviously yesterday in the uh, parallel uh universe that curan was mentioning there um so yeah like we we uh we know what these days are like you know it kind of you, there's kind of a, a sense of oh yes well we're still in it so uh, you know, our, our views actually count quite a bit on this, you know, so I'm sure the Yugoslavians, the Spaniards, they're all worried about us, you know, they have to sit back and worry about us now. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of, it is kind of odd, you know, I mean, it's like Italian 90 in the Irish, uh, in Irish eyes, you know, it's like, it's the tournament doesn't exist if we're not. You know, playing a game in it. You know, for for the most part, you know. So that's kind of been what's so interesting about this podcast, and what's interesting about sitting back and watching this game as well, is that, you know, you you, you nearly you nearly take it as read that everyone was playing football like like we were playing it. You know, Um and you know, in the I'm so
1: grateful that not everybody was.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's like the like in in our eyes, you know, that like. Okay, so you know, Packy Bonner basically caused the backpass rule to be brought in. You know, we, we, we you know, we center ourselves and our experience so massively in Italian ninety, but in effect, you know, like we were <laughs> we were the team that no that everyone was like, you know what, if I have to miss a game today, let's make sure it's the Ireland game. Just <laughs> as we were in USA ninety four as well. You know, like we're literally the most terrible team to watch imaginable. So it's it was actually really nice to watch. Uh, Yugoslavia and Spain, two like insanely good technical teams, um, you know who, who who pride themselves on their technical ability. Uh, you know the the football compared to now was you know a lot slower, maybe a lot more methodical. But I mean, you could you could see players who were quite obviously well capable of being brilliant players in any era. So for, like for that reason alone, it was actually I actually really enjoyed the chance to to watch Italian ninety from outside the Ireland bubble.
0: Yeah, at this point in time, uh, Billy Joe, the Irish team were heading down to Rome. Uh, there was a problem with their hotel. Uh, just a, a, cl- a cutting from the newspaper, I'll give it to you first and we'll get back to Kira on it. The Irish team had strongly considered moving out of their luxury hotel 30 kilometres outside Rome because of overcrowding, but administration members of the official party volunteered to go elsewhere. Those were good times in comparison to Saipan. Anyways, Billy Joe, a load of officials, including Dr Tony O'Neill, volunteered to leave the hotel so the lads had more legroom.
2: Oh, that's great. Uh, They probably traveled all the way over to Italy in first class while the lads were down the back, cramped up. But uh, (laughs) we didn't get to hear that, that side of it. So maybe it was, they moved out to avoid a full scale revolt by the players. And and it's another, it's more evidence of Jack's management skills than keeping that one quiet. But look, it it must have been so exciting for the players and everyone involved at at that, just in terms of you know, what you're going into after getting over the Romania game. And I suppose just even on that, now the thinking back of it, thinking back mm. about the game, like the one thing that I keep uh, remembering is the tension, the tension of the penalty shootout. The sun splitting the stones. I remember my brother couldn't take it. He just, had to, he just had to leave the room. He ended up walking up the road. Now, I think we still slag him about not being able to take the tension of the penalty shootout.
1: You'd never guess Billy Joe's brother was a goalkeeper, though, would you? Because it's like it's it's a multiplication of ten times more tension than any outfield player. Yeah,
2: couldn't take it. Couldn't take it. Gone up the hill, and I was looking up the window, seeing him about a hundred yards up the road, and kind of you know, even even when the you know when David O'Leary stuck it in the net, like he's still up there, and we're like, come back, come back, we won, you know, we're through. So um, you know, that's that's the memory of it. So I suppose the point I'm trying to make is that the whole outburst of, the, of, if you were a player, of that relief of getting through the euphoria, they must have felt looking forward to going up to Rome and play uh, play up there, fantastic stuff, I'd say.
0: and yeah, we've been kind of, y- yesterday's show was a lot about this, and before we get into the, today's game, I just wanted to see what you thought about this as well. We've been wrestling with that whole idea of this first explosion of of the sport really hitting every corner of the country and all the good that came with that before the, you know, the expectations were raised and before the questions started to come. And obviously there's that feeling that maybe Ireland got too easy of a ride and Eamon Dunphy was right in what he was trying to challenge in the Jack Charlton era. But there is that kind of sense of, it was such great, there's so much innocence to all of this run and it, it's what you mm. can look for in sport, isn't it?
3: Oh yeah, completely. I mean, you know... <laughs> Like the football is completely incidental, you know. When a country of four and a half million, five million people gets to the World Cup quarterfinal, it's like, you know, who's questioning the the method at that stage? You know what I mean? Like, and the more you. Kind of separate yourself from it. The more you realize, like it's a World Cup quarterfinal. You know, we may never get another one. You know, like at this stage, like what would you say are our chances of reaching another World Cup quarterfinal in the next twelve years there, You know, you know, like it's, you know, the like it's the last eight in the world. You know, it's amazing, like yeah. the, ten countries play rugby in the world, and we still haven't reached any further than a World Cup quarterfinal. Do you know what I mean in <laughs> rugby? So, do you know, the, what you're talking about is the highest of heights. So, you know, you can't really overstate Ireland and Romania as a, you know, as a turning point in Irish sport. I mean, it's still, you know, the greatest, the, the greatest day in Irish sport, I think, to be honest. I mean, what's, you know, what's even up there to to match it? You know, it's the most extraordinary thing. And, you know, obviously, you know, we didn't play very good football. We were the first team since 1958 to get to a World Cup quarterfinal without winning a game. And I don't know if anyone's done it since.
1: But, like, I think FIFA changed you know. the rules so you couldn't.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's like as you say, like it's it it shouldn't be the case, and it probably won't ever happen again. But there you go. We we still we were still there, and like the achievement is just gets uh, more and more impressive the the further away from it we we travel, you know.
0: Uh, t- just to you, Girono uh Walter Zenga was in the uh, paper uh, saying that uh, Packy Bonner is one of his favourite goalkeepers in the competition so far. I mean, the Italians had to pay- take note of Ireland.
1: Ah, uh, look, I'm, I'm sure uh, the goalkeepers union, I'm sure he had great admiration for him.
0: Yeah, he certainly <laughs> did. <laughs> just saw one penalty save. All right, I think it's almost time to move on. First game. Day
4: 18 June the 26th, 1990, World Cup round of 16, Spain 1, Yugoslavia 2.
0: Billy Joe Padden, hero.
2: When I think of this World Cup, you know, As I said, I, I told you about this that my constant revisiting of, of the 1990 World Cup was due to a VHS of all the goals of the 1982, 1986, and 1990 World Cup. I think a company called KTEL produced it. My uncle used to work for them, so we used to get videos like that. And when I think of the goals, I think of Matthias against Yugoslavia, where he hurdles the defender and smashes it in from outside the box. But the second goal I think of instantly is Stojkovic's first. Just the way he faints as the ball is flicked on by Katenich, uh, he sees it coming. It loops up in the air. He thinks about, you know, will I volley it first time? Will I hit it on the half volley first time? No, I'm much more clever than that. I'm going to, you know, make a fool of this guy. Take it inside on a on a dummy shot, and then just pass it into the corner of the net. Absolutely, you know, the, the second best goal in the tournament, in my opinion, just for the deception of it. Absolutely beautiful, brilliant, and it just announces him. If, if anyone needed any encouragement to to go and say, go and have a look at him, that this fella is uh, uniquely talented and an incredible footballer. And I think he got a move to to Marseille on, on the back of it. Now I think that his career, like maybe some other players we've already mentioned in, in the in the podcast, you know, suffered through injuries, uh, which is not a surprise considering some of the tackles we've also seen in this tournament. But there's no doubt in his talent and his finesse. What a goal!
1: I'd go one farther. I think in a World Cup where we've talked about the lack of finishing prowess, we have con- constantly referenced just how good the playmakers were. And I think this is the most complete performance by a number 10 in this entire tournament. And I, like the goal is one thing, that's it's utterly sublime. But some of his passing in the game was terrific. Every time he decided to take a player on, he dropped his shoulder he got past them. if he wanted to hold possession no defender could touch him it is the most complete performance in this tournament in my opinion and and the free then as well is just brilliant And I actually remember, that was my memory of the time, I remember after that game, going out into the yard and practising that free over and over. The dip that's on it. Super has no chance, and actually, if you watch the Spanish wall, the player on the end of it, literally, his head watches as it goes around him. He turns with the flight of the ball to watch it go into the net. And the Spanish defenders just kind of walk off going, well, what can you do about that? Uh, And the contrast is, when Spain have been on top for large portions of this game, Portuguese so off, so far off form. He can't give them that incision. But Stojkovic provides it twice and it's ultimately what delivers Yugoslavia to the quarterfinals. Uh,
0: Murph, did you did you uh, know much about this game before you started watching
3: it or uh, uh you... no. I had to remind myself who won it actually before ah. the game. I was I was there was a part of me that was tempted to watch it absolutely uh no actually I to be honest by the time the first ten minutes going, I I would have backed myself to remember how Yugoslavia eventually went out of the tournament because that was that game was played immediately before Ireland Italy, and I do remember watching that at my cousin's house in uh, in Enniskim in County Clare, so I would have got there eventually. But um, yeah, I mean the like the the one of the things that struck me about this was you know that in the intervening time, you know you would have said. You know, like the that that Spain were always going to be the technical team, but really, you know, at the, at this point in in world football, Yugoslavia would have been you know generally regarded as the more as the superior technical team, and um, and so what you were dealing with in a lot of ways actually was two of the great underachieving nations in in world sports, you know, um, and you know from a interesting from kind of a, a geopolitical point of view is that like both of these countries were underachieving for the same reason in the eyes of a lot of people which is that they were basically fractured societies now Yugoslavia wasn't even a country until 1919 I think since until Versailles so that idea of like uh and I know you've spoken a little bit about this uh on previous podcasts but like that idea that that it wasn't a country in any real sense. It was a country for less than 80 years, um, in total. So, you know, Spain, for all of its, uh, sort of different cultures, different languages, different regions, it's still a more homogenous state than Yugoslavia ever was. And it's just kind of interesting that, 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 as you watch, as you watch both these teams, you can see, you know, you, you what you, what you're looking for as the game starts is, okay, these two, these two teams should be fractured, you know, they should be, um, less in the sum of their parts. But, you know, it didn't make the game any less, any less enjoyable. I mean, I, the, the link that I was watching it was the Spanish commentary and, uh, you know, I obviously don't have any Spanish whatsoever, but I mean, it was amazing that as you're kind of the, the teams are lining up and there's like a three man commentary team, it's like, okay, so there's the commentator, then there's the recently retired guy. And then there's the gruff elder statesman. And I'm like, this is TV coverage around the world is literally exactly the same, you know? <laughs> and then it turns out the, the, the gruff elder station was Alfredo Di Stefano, you know? It's like, Jesus. <laughs> okay, I mean, if this guy wants to shit all over his uh, space performance today, I suppose they're just going to have to, you know, sit there and take it. Um, <laughs> I mean, you've talked about Stoick there, like, and he's just, like, he's just such a dream of a footballer, you know? And, like, I remember him from this World Cup, I remember him in, 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 at the 98 World Cup, and maybe like yourself, Billy Joel, like I went, you know, after I'd finished watching the game, it's like, okay, Stoicovic, like, like what did he actually do in his career? And he got that move to Marseille. And then he was like played in Japan for five years. So, you know, he's a guy that like, obviously has all this amazing talent, like this amazing ability, but he's a World Cup footballer, you know, in the way that like Miroslav Klose could like, you know, you know like all of the football in the world that we've watched since 2000, like the Champions League, all the rest, like Miroslav Klose was a champions league non entity, as so Stoikovitch was like just one of those guys that knew when to turn it on at the right time and got himself fit for World Cups and stuff like that, but I mean it was weird like actually watching then the 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 full game like I was absolutely loving Stojkovic. and then, in the midst of the Spanish commentary, just as the teams were about to come back out, they're obviously talking about the the Yugoslavian bench, and they mentioned Dejan Savichevich, and I was like get <laughs> yeah, just get him on. Because I was, I'm a lefty as well, you know, a left footer, and Dejan Savicevic was just like one of my all time favorites. I mean, if you're asking me about one of my like your favorite football game of your like very young days watching football, then it's like AC Milan four Barcelona 0. What Champions League final was that? Like 1994, and Savicevic is lobbed from you know like the over Zubis Reda. From like twenty five yards out on the right wing with his left foot, I mean the bicycle shorts, the whole thing. Like I just <laughs> deja vu. Just name it. It's like unbelievably redolent for someone like me. For, he won the for, free,
1: actually, uh, didn't he?
3: Yeah, he won the the, the free that uh converted. But I mean, he came on and was utterly brilliant and utterly daft in pretty much everything he did. Like the the Yugoslavians did a brilliant job of holding on to the lead for like the first half of extra time, and then the second half of extra time, Savicevic did some things that honestly would be enough to, I think, get him killed by a modern-day manager. Like, he he takes the ball into the opponent's half, there's no one near him, and he just, like, sets off on these mazy dribbles and gets, like, uh, turned over, loses possession within about three seconds. And you're just like, Dejan. kick the ball to the corner flag, run to the corner flag, and try <laughs> to foul, You utter lunatic. But it was, it was like, Savicevic, uh, Stojković. these guys, like, ah, oh, like, just next level. Like, absolutely brilliant. The conversation that, like, happens around this Yugoslavia team, and I know it's been mentioned on, on this podcast, and it's mentioned all the time, is, you know, it's like... Setting aside, you know, obviously what happens in the coming years, it's like, oh, you know, if, if Yugoslavia had had stuck together, they could have won the World Cup in 1994. And that's obviously absolutely true when you look at, uh, as Dave Hannigan was talking about, the subs bench, and, you know, Boban wasn't even there, Proznetsky, Robert Yarni, all these brilliant players, Davro Shuker. But, like, it that, you know, international football is not about the team with the 11 best footballers you know, winning the tournament, you know, like, you know, we see with teams like Northern Ireland now, we see, we see with Ireland when we get our act together and when we don't have our act together, that actually the quality of footballer is secondary to a unity of purpose and a great manager and, you know, like momentum, you know, like the you know, these international tournaments are often solved by, are often won by momentum and by team spirit and, you know, the intangibles, you know, and I, I think that, like, for all that this Yugoslavian team were very good, you know, they were never going to have the sort of unity of purpose that's required to actually go and win these tournaments.
0: Yeah, it just makes me wonder, though, like, is what, like, and I'll bring you back in, Murph, but uh, Billy Joe, like, we watched them and you were on the show for the 4-1 defeat, like, There may not be too many stories like this in the history of a World Cup. There's one or two. Argentina got to a final after being dreadful in their first game. But they were utterly destroyed by West Germany in that first game. And for them to turn things around, to look like such a force and beat beat a good side like Spain to get to the last eight, it was some turnaround.
2: It was. It was. And I think it was based on the fact that they had so many experienced players who could deal with that. And and the squad was competitive, as Murph points out. There, like you don't even—he's mentioned all those players. Some of them were on the squad, some of them weren't. That, like I—I I, I think I said in an earlier edition of the podcast that you know their peak probably would have been in '94 or, or Euro '96, but um, I think they would have lent heavily on Susic, who was a you know an amazing footballer. You like love Susic. I just adore him. Yeah, he's a. <laughs> he's a, he's a He's the classic hipsters uh, footballer you know 35 at this stage I think back in 2005 or something like that France football voted him the best ever foreign player in the French league probably has changed now with all the money gone into PSG but like just spent 10 years 19 years at PSG where he was just like the best player in the league and even watching him yesterday again where he didn't he, did, he actually played better in the first 20 minutes of the Germany game where he's, he's playing the game at walking pace But just the talent the ability the clipped passes you see, you see them there but I think players like him would have been vitally important in terms of how you reassess yourself after losing to the germans because they probably said look here they're probably the best team in this tournament of maybe we can find a way to to play them again at some stage or get to the latter stages we've already played the best team and we lived with them for 30 minutes okay after that we couldn't do much but let let that be the base for us to start on uh, and i think that that's obviously what they did
0: here did spain uh, surprise you impress you
3: disappoint you. Oh, well I I really like Martin Vasquez. Uh he was like a Brian Robson type. Uh and he had like a very like a crudely effective uh first 45 minutes in particular. And Michelle was obviously Michelle was obviously coming back off the back of uh of a hat trick in the group stages as well. Um uh, yeah, I mean I expected them to be better to be honest. I expected them to be to be technically better than they were. And you know, in a weird kind of way as well, I expected that, I expected them to have more household names than they had, you know. I mean, there was Butrugueño and and Julio Salinas up front. Um, but there were only three Barcelona outfield players uh in the World Cup squad. Uh and there were I think six Real uh, three outfield players from Barcelona plus Zubi Zareta. So four from Barcelona and six from Real Madrid. Uh and the rest were was kind of uh You know, the the spread was a lot more even maybe than I expected.
1: I think La Liga was more even then though, because, you know, you kind of had... Real Sociedad were big at the time with John Toshek as manager. Uh, Athletic Bilbao was a big club at the time. So I think there was a more even regional spread in those days. But but Martin Vasquez, I'm delighted you mentioned him because he's he's one of the more fascinating characters. It was very rare for a Spanish footballer to leave Spain at the time. And after this World Cup, he kind of begins the life of a wandering minstrel. He goes to Torino, he goes to Germany, you know. He's one of those rare exceptions. We now accept that Spanish players will play anywhere. But he was one of the first that was willing to do so.
3: Yeah, uh, and I thought I, I just, like, he, he was a pretty uncomplicated footballer. And, like, to be honest, I mean, I thought, Spain were, I thought Spain were good, but, like, the second, I just thought you were the better team all along. And I, funny enough, I thought if, if maybe if, if the goal had come 40 minutes earlier in this game, like the first goal is scored, I think in the, what is the 78th minute or something yeah. like that. Like if, if, if the first goal had come a little sooner, it actually could have been a really good game. But as it was, and I mean, it was, it was mentioned on the, on the commentary a bit as well. It's just like this absurd heat that they were playing in. I mean, it did look insanely warm. The play was a little more cautious as a result. You know what I mean? I think there were a lot of very technically gifted players, but they're you know watching it from this remove. You, the the game is a lot slower than than any game that you would watch now. At you know even anything approaching sort of you know the top half of the Premier League or or even La Liga, you know the game is a, is much much slower. And given that most of the technical technical ability was on the Yugoslavian team, and they always. To me, looked the more likely team to to go and win the game. Like Spain got the goal late on um, to bring it to extra time. The Stoikovic's second goal was after like two minutes of extra time, and after that, really, like Yugoslavia just bossed the game.
1: I think if Butragueño had had eighty six form in this tournament, Spain are a contender. But. When he's in the kind of patchy form he had been in for, I'd say twelve to eighteen months at that stage.
3: Yeah, like he was not actually in this game. It was—it's kind of weird because I obviously had high expectations of him. Remembering the—I mean, it was nearly like it's—it's it's a, nearly a gag on our podcast now. But every time he gets mentioned, we we there's. Some obviously some bullshit that we must have actually just invented about Emilio Butrugenio that his heart rate actually slowed when he entered the penalty area. I don't know that, <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure actually that's something we may have just invented, but uh, yeah, I mean, like you were talking about like a really, really high quality uh, striker, but I mean, yeah, he was a pale shadow of himself, really, in, in this game.
0: Speaking of heart rates, uh, Luis Suarez, the manager, uh, must have had the fastest heart rate of anyone in the World Cup. He just struck me a few times during this World Cup as a as a, a kind of a excitable figure. Let's put it that way. He gets sent off after uh, Yugoslavia get the goal sent to the uh, stands or the tunnel as it was then, and it, it just it, I kind of looked him up. Kieran, uh, I'll give this back to you first. Uh, like I looked him up like he has an incredible record having been with Inter Milan and but this was it for him this was his management high point and even watching Zubi Zeresha go off the pitch at the end the footage that we watched it just a long slow walk it was like something out of a movie um, it's just it just encapsulated the Spain that I grew up watching which was a Spain that would just always disappoint
1: yeah and I think you get these occasions in football where you get an icon to manage a team I think we've seen it happen a few times it's like Maradona managing Argentina Keegan managing England Uh, there are several cases through time where where you turn to an icon to to see if they can lift the hopes of a nation that's the status that Suarez has but he hasn't really got the record to support that Um, and this I actually felt that dismissal in some ways just showed how how much of a failure it was for him because he isn't like he, he, he is untouchable in the 60s as a player, but as a manager, he just hasn't delivered. And that's that's the ultimate symbol of it is him walking down that tunnel.
0: BJO, Joe, what were your thoughts about just to see him getting sent off? And did, did it strike you as something that might have affected the flow of the entire game? I mean, Spain did come back and equalize after that, of course.
2: I, I think it's just uh, as as Kieran as is saying there. I think it's it's just evidence of the fractions that there are in that who are in that squad because they they, they were never able to get over. I suppose the the local disputes they had, whether it be Barcelona or Real, whether it be the Basque teams, uh, they just were never able to put those things aside. And I suppose this team, this Spanish team, was built on the back of that. Uh, the five players that came out of the. Real Madrid academy in the early 80s Butragueño and Michel and and Vasquez and, and and Sanchez and I think Pardesa was the other player um and he, I think he only he was on the bench but they could never find that common vision and it took until whatever it was uh, 10 years ago 15 years ago for them to be able to put that to one side and actually deliver on the talent on the talent they they had and I think just the I was watching them get sent off and sitting on the sideline, and I was kind of wasn't really paying attention. i was just kind of wondering, well, look, like, you know, how do you, how does that happen in a situation where you actually need to so, show some leadership on the sideline, and, and then you actually just show petulance? And uh, from that point, I, you kind of, I kind of just automatically think, well, then there's not a really a combined vision of what they want to achieve something here, and and it was no surprise then to to see that they you know they weren't able to be a sort of unified group
0: yeah possibly uh murph we've got to let you go but uh before we do uh your final thoughts on on this uh journey into the uh archives random journey at that
3: <laughs> yeah i mean well like uh the the uh yeah like the idea of sitting down to watch 120 minutes of a game uh the result of which i know or it's very easily googleable didn't it honestly it I have to say, Rob, full disclosure, it didn't exactly fill my heart with a great deal of joy. I mean, I would do it for you. I would do anything for you. I've already said that. I'm on record, Rob, as saying that. <laughs> but, um, but I'm not going to lie. My heart did sink a little when I had to be reminded that this game went to extra time. I was like, this guy, the balls of this guy. <laughs> but, uh, uh, no, it, it actually, it it's very instructive, you know, because, I mean, it, it, I think it's always instructive. It's something that we've learned over the course of lockdown as well. That like reminding yourself uh, that the game always progresses, no matter what game it is. You know, what I mean, if you watch a rugby game from 1990, maybe it's even more obvious than any other sport. But like all all sports progress, you know. And like the there is no land of lost content. You know, there is no golden era. The game changes sometimes better, sometimes worse. But it's always like the the parameters the 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 way in which you view a sport, it it changes every year. So, it is good to go back and watch uh, and, wa- and watch a game from thirty years ago and and see the both the sort of the micro like the like the thrill of seeing uh, a young day and Savicovich, uh, and then also just the macro like the how the game has changed, like just what an amazing rule change the back pass was. Uh, no, it was actually it was a lot of fun, you know, a, a lot of fun. And I know you guys were having a lot of fun watching this. So no, it's been it's it was great, great crack.
1: Rob, just before Murph signs off, just to make him feel really good about himself. Ireland, Go on. Ireland have gone farther in this World Cup than Brazil, the Netherlands, <laughs> now
3: Spain. Okay, <laughs> we're having a good World Cup. <laughs> exactly, and you know we're the eighth best team in the world. At least, at worst, we're the eighth best team in the uh, in the world. Results don't lie. <laughs> Who knows? I'm, where with it all, I'm with you 110% on that one.
0: Before you go, I think you'll enjoy this, Karen, as we link to the next game. Uh, one more cutting from the newspaper. A specially chartered plane carrying 246 England football fans thrown out of Italy after violence exploded on the streets of uh, uh, where was it, Bologna yesterday arrived back in the UK last night. 246 English football hooligans on the one plane, 1990.
1: God, you'd love to be the stewards on that one, wouldn't you?
3: Yeah, I was thinking that like, that's, that's a hothouse of some of the very best and brightest that, uh, that England has to offer there. But uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sure they slept. I'm sure they attempted to sleep it off on the flight home anyway.
0: There's a snakes on the plane reference somewhere in there, but I'm not even going to go on it. All right, that's it. <laughs> to the next game.
4: World Cup round of sixteen. England won, Belgium nil.
0: Just on that newspaper cutting uh, follow on, it did know they did note at the end of it, Kieran, that like it, it's brought more it brought into jeopardy the idea of uh, English clubs being allowed to return to European competition. It was such a tense time. This is we're getting into the England Belgium game. The atmosphere was incredible at this game, but the English supporters were still such a talking point in this World Cup, and I know they were in Euro '88 as well. And their uh, sports minister Colin Moynihan uh, was at that tournament and at this tournament, and uh, God, he must have had the toughest job in in. Euro European politics, trying to, uh, you know, uh, deal and liaise with with the police in foreign countries uh, when his supporters were
1: causing so much trouble. Yeah, like, he was a very high-profile sports minister when you think about it, because it's generally an insignificant role in British cabinet. Mm. But because they'd been ostracised from European football, he was working very hard to end the hooliganism issue, to bring them back into European competition, because they knew Jobs relied upon this as well. You know what I mean? There are so many things that we come to understand now as just being part of football, sports tourism, sports marketing, sponsorship, all of these things. And they've grown exponentially. But at the time, they still existed in 1990. And it was important to Britain. Don't forget that they wanted to host Euro 96. They wanted to be able to bid for World Cup tournaments. And to do that, you have to uh, outwardly project a better image of yourself. Now, there was some crowd trouble in the stand that night as well. But let's look at it in the overall scheme of things. Generally, English fans behaved in the vast majority very well. We're talking about minute numbers causing trouble. And minute numbers of Dutch fans caused trouble. And minute numbers. So ultimately, I think they're able to compare those figures with other countries and say, actually, there isn't a significant issue here.
0: Yeah, they are. And and it was uh, it was also kind of as, as years went on, you get by the time you get past Euro 2000, they really started to learn how to properly police these situations with less aggression from the police as well, which did help.
1: Yeah, uh, like there's a lot of provocation. We hear about it repeatedly in terms of how these English fans are treated by the Carabinieri and by the authorities in Italy. So I wouldn't immediately look at press clippings from the time and say that that's necessarily reflective because the press at the time were looking for bad stories in football.
0: We've talked about some of the some of the elements of supporters, Billy Joe, but the atmosphere in that ground was, was really, really good. Uh, I've mentioned already, Belgium fans just have struck me just watching the TV pictures as being a lively and colourful bunch and the noise and the singing and the packed stadium. Do you know, going from the Yugoslavia-Spain game that we just watched where there was a lot of empty seats and it was during the day to this... Was a massive change, wasn't
2: it? It was, uh, and I think going into a game, particularly for Belgium uh, and England, it some extent, both sets of supporters were going into it confident. You know, they're well, the Belgian team were playing great. They did a couple of key players that we hammered on about, Shifo and Kuhlmann's playing really well, and and they, they they started the game like that. They started the game at a high tempo. The the crowd responded to it. I suppose the evening game does do, does help, and it, it reminded it was more like the. The Netherlands West Germany games than 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 the Spain Yugoslavia game in terms of tempo, Um, but it takes players with confidence and teams to go out and try and do that. And and Belgium probably were that team. They had the better of the game in my opinion, and they definitely had the better of the opening stages, and particularly in that first half. Like they had a couple of great opportunities where Coolamon hits the the, the angle with a with a a kind of a drive with off his left boot that takes Shilton. Shilton's just left standing like like a statue. But I think the real the real moment for Belgium in that first half is Schifo's miss when he's one-on-one kind of situation with and He kind of just hits it straight out. Like Schilten do, does well, kind of advances on him quickly. But for a player like Schifo, who had been playing so well in that tournament, he didn't show, I suppose, the ice in the veins that, that you would need if Belgium were to go. If Belgium had taken the lead there, with the way they played football, I don't think there's any way back for England. I think
1: Belgium, if the Kuhlmann's shot had gone in, The confidence and the lift it would have given them. I think they could have gone on to win the game by 2 or 3 nil. And actually, the other one that's critical in the second half is Shifo's one that hits the post. If that goes in, that's one of the goals of the tournament. We're no longer, (laughs) just hours later, we're going to forget about Stoicovic. The Shifo strike. Uh, I do think one of the things, you've mentioned the atmosphere. I'm so glad this was in one of the smaller stadia. Um, I think if this had been in the Stadio Dele Alpe or Stadio Olimpico or the San Siro where it's 70,000 plus, you don't get this atmosphere. But it's the perfect size to create an absolutely raucous atmosphere. And it's one of those occasions where you can see the players really enjoying it. Like even post-match, Bobby Robson is dancing, Terry Butcher and Chris Waddle are dancing. You know, there's a party atmosphere
2: in the stadium.
0: Did you show know, England good in this, and how
2: good um, were? They? Well, if I can just say on on this on this the stadium on the stadium, I, I was just do, watching the game back last night and just checking my phone, checking for articles here and there. And there was a, there was a I think a piece I can't remember was it in the BBC or the Guardian or something like that where it was like maybe it was like a where are you now piece or or, or a, I think no, it was more of a case of speaking to the players that were there and their thoughts, quotations from them. And and Shilton said that about the the stadium he felt there was so much character you know with the, the I suppose the the stone or the brick finish on the tower and he says it's it, he, he was 40 he played in a lot of stadiums at that stage and he says he vividly remembers it and it was just for the I suppose the feeling he got from playing from playing in that stadium so I think that was worth noting I think England played okay they, Belgium were the better team I think they played okay uh, they should have team. had a, they should have had a goal they should have had a goal, and I want to speak on that. But I, I think the one thing, and even reading that same piece about Shilton that crossed to mind, is that Chris Waddle, the change in formation, you know, going to three at the back with Mark Wright as kind of a sweeper in the middle, it allowed John Barnes to play off Lineker, so he wasn't just stuck out on the wing in a 4-4-2 with lots of defensive responsibility. And Waddle, in the same way, had that, had more freedom to go forward because he'd, you know, Paul Parker was there playing the right wing back in that stage. And of course, he had Gaza inside you. So you're talking about putting three very creative players in close proximity to each other and asking them to, I suppose, combine. And that, Waddle said that never happened for England before. Before they were just lamped into a 4 4 2 and just told to work up the line. And I think you probably saw, you, you, you were maybe beginning to see that they could have developed into a more football team because, Gaza had obvious talent. John Barnes was a fantastic footballer and, and Waddle had a lot of ability playing for, for Marseille. Uh, on the Barnes thing, I, you know, I'm a Liverpool fan uh, and I love John Barnes. Love him just for what he's done for Liverpool. Love love early John Barnes where he's this dynamic athlete that can beat players, great close control, like controls the ball and it's nearly under his feet and you're wondering how he's not tripping over it. Uh, you see some great goals, particularly from like 87, 88 here when he was playing with. With Houghton and, and Aldridge and all these players in a, in a great Liverpool team, and I love the John Barnes when he couldn't run, where he just had to stand in the middle of the field for Liverpool and pass the ball and and, and use that the, the vision that he had. But I think you saw glimpses in the game against Belgium where that close control he was able to you know drag backs and and get out of, out of people's way. At times he ran down blind alleys, but had the strength and the skill to be able to hold on to the ball and recycle it again. But to me, it's a kind of a travesty. And it's something that has been really annoying me throughout watching these games has been the offside rule, where players that are obviously level are being flagged for being offside. And the Glenecker puts the ball in. Barnes he might even, there's an argument to say that even on the rule at the time, he should have been declared offside because he could have been behind the last defender. But at the very worst, he's level. And I I think he's behind. It would definitely be allowed today. There's no question. There's no question about today. But even at the time, I felt it, it could have been allowed because he might have just been behind. But today, it's a goal and the rule was changed in 1990 after that. And it's one of the the, the legacies of that World Cup and, and we've spoken about that and, and how important that has been for the growth and the enjoyment of football as an enter- entertaining game. And it's a great finish from him. He sides foot as was left foot with confidence. His pass proved home before he even realizes it. And again, I think if England get that early goal, you, the game opens up again. Not to say that England would definitely win, but I think then you probably see a bit more urgency in what Belgium have to do. And the game might have even been even better following that moment if that were to happen.
1: I think a critical factor in this game is actually, Brian Robson's had to go home. Um, And I read an interview with Robson today, Bobby Robson, sorry, around the time, where he said that that was the equivalent of them losing their Maradona or their Mateus, that that's how valuable he is to the England team. So he seems to be framing it in the sense of a real hit to them. And then post match, his post match interview, he's absolutely ebullient about how they've done it for Brian. And it's the man that's come in to replace him, the young boy. He doesn't even have the name. It's kind of one of the things we associate with Bobby Robson. The young boy who's come in to replace him has done brilliantly. But I actually think if if we look at the young boy that he's talking about, he didn't start him. He started Steve McMahon. And I, I, I think the final piece in this jigsaw for England is Platt coming into the team. Because then you've got. Four attacking threats in midfield. You've got Waddle, you've got Barnes, you've got Gascoigne, who absolute again in this game, is super. Some of his passing is utterly unreal. And the one for the goal, he gets that in between two Belgian defenders to Platt. And Platt does a full 360. He's facing outwards. He's looking at the trajectory of the pass. He's going, that's coming to me. And he times his turn in such a way that he can hit it perfectly on the volley. Now we talk about what makes a goal great. Impact makes a great uh, goal great. Timing makes a goal great. He's he's got two of the trifecta of great goals there. The impact and the timing of this are so crucial in what it is.
2: I think as well when you talk about you know some people have said that all you know brilliant sports people whether they're soccer players, basketball players, any 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 of those that require technical skill are geniuses, and. When I look at the ball in from Gascoigne, you know, Paul Gascoigne mightn't be able to articulate what he was thinking throughout that long run-up. Because he took this huge long run-up and, you know, I'm sure people thought he's going to have a shot here from 40 yards and see what, you know, try and arrive their overstop. And I'd love to know, and he might be able to describe himself, you know, when he started that run-up 20 metres back from the ball, had he a clear idea about what he was going to do? I don't think he had. I think Gaza is just such an instinctive footballer that he was running up and he was just seeing the movement in front of him or the, the lack of it. And then at the at the end he decides, well that's an area where I'm gonna drop it in, as you described Kieran. And that's probably the only way we can score a goal from this free kick.
1: Yeah, it's pure intuition. If that goes yeah. a foot to the right or a foot to the left, that's intercepted by a Belgian defender. That's how closely the two defenders close the two defenders were to Platt at the time
2: it's an utterly outrageous piece of skill
0: yeah that's
2: why i think that's why i take the Gascoigne just reacts. It's an instinct for him to actually put it in that area. It's not something that he has... It's, pre, it's not premeditated. It's a reaction to what he sees in front of him as he's making that run-up. And that's just, to me, it's just... That's that's the, the undis, unexplainable genius of some of these superstar players or, or that technical ability. They, can, they don't even know themselves why they do that, but they, it's just the right thing to do and they find the, the right solution. But it's it's wonderful technique from Platt because in that situation... He doesn't hit it hard. He just times it. It's all timing. And he just strokes it and it just loops with the perfect trajectory really into the far corner. It's it's a a wonderful goal to win again.
1: Well, I mean, we've talked before about the, at the time when they made the, the films about the World Cup, so you would buy the video a few months afterwards of the World Cup that they were actually shot on film. So some of it looks so superior to TV at the time. But I've seen the film footage of Platt's turn. and. It's balletic. You know, he's looking outwards. He sees the ball coming in. He's got his eyes on it all the way. The only time his eyes come off it is as he turns, knowing that it's going to land where his foot is ready to cushion it to the net.
2: I, I think the other thing, as well, in that, in that same piece that I, I've described uh, or, or mentioned already, Platt had said that. And uh, my recollection of a footballer, of course, uh, my brother David was a big Villa fan, so I heard a lot about David Platt during that period uh, when Villa went close to winning the winning the title, I think it was at 88 or 89, one of those seasons, um, that he used to practice volleys a lot. And I think when you see, you know, he, his game was about arriving in the box late, whether a volley or a header. Great volleys of the ball never try and hit the ball too hard. And he he said in the piece that that was all technique. He knew exactly what he was trying to do, and, and, and it was important to him not to swipe at it or try and hit it too hard. He just had to guide it. What a what a strike.
1: And, he, and like as a midfielder, he's prolific. He was one of the top scorers in the English First Division that year. Now, obviously, subsequently, it gets him his move to Italy, and he turns out to be one of the more successful exports from English football to Italian football.
2: Yeah, he goes to Barry, I think, initially, and then he takes a tra- transfer to Juventus where he doesn't really play that often and, and, and spends another couple of seasons at Sampdoria with um, with Mancini. I think he wins a... I yeah,
1: reading, I he think. was very good at Sampdoria.
0: Yeah. Defending as the Belgium correspondent on this podcast, I have to wonder what went wrong. How do you concede a goal like that? How much do you place on Belgium going to sleep? I, I don't know. I, I I find it
2: difficult... I I think, yeah, look, there's obviously mistakes there that just center half, they were spread out in such a a line across the field that I think if you're looking at it back, you have to put your center halves on on that side of the penalty area because that's the most likely location for a dropping ball is to, to the right there slightly to create some sort of angle. So I think the mistake there is that any of those defenders let that ball get over their head. You know, you need to be getting ahead on that, even if it's if you're heading it out for a corner, if there's nothing more you can do. So that's the mistake is just being too high up the field or too high up in their own penalty box. But for me to go. Back, for you to go back and analyse it defensively, you'd have to just figure out where are their best headers of the ball because they should be positioned in, in that area of the penalty box, in my opinion.
1: I, I don't think you can criticise the defence on the defending of that free because the ball in is so good. I think if you're going to criticise them, I think where Gerrits takes down Gascoigne is is a point of criticism. But it's
0: not a dangerous area of the pitch. In, uh, it in is way, when you've I... got
1: a free taker like him around, Rob. Yeah, it but
0: what do they, they always say you need an angle for free, don't they, though? That's what I thought. A free straight on. Oh, you have no angle to work with there. And yet he's he, like, I mean, it's wonderful. It's like a quarterback in, in American football dropping a pass in over the shoulder of the, the quarterback. But like at the same time, it's like that's a dropping ball directly coming into the box. Surely someone could put a head on it. Mick McCarty would have yeah
2: I, look here I, I think the defenders could be deep deep but it, that is one of the great skills Gaza had. Gaza might have whipped the ball in like david Beckham would with with, with great pace and whip, but his his touch. You know, his, his, uh, I suppose, just his touch. A quarterback would call it that the, the touch to be able to drop the ball into an area. You know, that sort of finesse throw as opposed to a, a, a power throw. And Gaza had that, with that ability to drop a ball into a particular area. Uh, and, and that's exactly, as Kieran described, he puts it exactly where he wants it to go, to drop.
1: And, and just on Gaza, Rob, we can't let it go without notice. He picked up a yellow card in this game, which is going to become significant at a later stage. And, um, and it was for taking down our boy wonder, Enzo Schifo.
0: What's the verdict on Belgium here, lads?
1: Uh, I think we're seeing a contender going out here, Up, That would be my opinion. I think even in the context of this game, they had players that on a different day would have undone England. I think they would actually have been a better opponent for Cameroon in the next round. And then when you're when you're into the last four, there's just no telling what they could have achieved, particularly with the playmaker of Shifa's ability.
2: I I agree. I agree. I think they would have played a better game against Cameroon, like England. Well, we're we're we going to talk about that at a later stage. But they they were they moved the ball better. They're much more comfortable in their ball movement, and I think that would have made it much more much more difficult for Cameroon in terms of the physical style they had. Um, and then who knows against Germany? Because I suppose we'll talk about this also, But you know. German, the German performance changes as the tournament goes
0: on. You kind of look at Belgium's record then and, and it, it was the end of an era, there's no question, through Euro 92 uh, and onwards they, they just didn't, I know they got to the World Cup in 94 but ah, uh, it seems like the end of an era Yeah but I mean, Geithuis
1: has done an amazing job with them over What, what he'd he been with them since the late
0: 70s? Yeah, they got to that final in Euro uh, 80 and I see Kumans was even playing in that, wasn't he? He was, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, they've they've
1: look for for the size of the country. They've they, they they've had a pretty good run of it. I mean, unless you've got a population of forty million plus, like the Italy's, the England's, the Germany's, it's very difficult to get a depth of talent, generation after generation. Uh, they had a great generation there. 30 years on, we're seeing another brilliant Belgian football generation. They've really got to maximise everything in football to achieve something. So, I'm, I'm, look, I think it's disappointing for them to go out in the way they did. But I think if you look upon it in the the whole history of Belgian football, it's a golden age for them.
2: I can't argue with that. I think, I think that that's inevitable uh, you know you, you look at population as Kieran said that that's huge and then when you're a smaller country you rely you rely on certain individuals you know you're not just going to have that turnover of these you know important personalities important players constantly replenishing your squad and they relied on Kuhlman's they relied on Garrett's they were a lot you know throughout the 80s and they were older in 19 you know, Shifo was a bit younger but like a couple of years into the 90s and Shifo wasn't the sort of consistent performer that Cooleman's was. Shifo was, uh, you know, he was a player that was up and down. He was definitely on an an up curve in his form in the 1990 World Cup, but there was other times when he wasn't as as effective as he was throughout that tournament. And you just, you can't, if you don't, if you're not producing that quality of player, your level is not going to
0: maintain. All right, that's it. We were now all of a sudden looking at three days off. Billy Joe, and a chance to just absolutely sit back and enjoy the hype and the mania that swept across the island as Ireland got ready to go to Rome.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm actually looking forward to watching that game. I, I don't remember a whole lot about it. so I'm, and, and, and by all accounts, you keep telling me that Ireland actually played well in that one. So, mm. so here's, here's hoping for, some, for something positive. And to be honest, quick turnaround. A lot of 120-minute football games over the last two or three days, You know, I, I can do with a break.
0: <laughs> yeah, our listeners can catch up a little bit. Some of them will, will just be uh, a chance to do that. Here on, this was going to be some few days uh, for Ireland uh, as we built up towards this.
1: Sorry, Rob. The, the excitement of the fact that Ireland are in the last date was the only thing that peeled me off the floor and the astonishment that we have three days off.
0: Three. Days off. What is it? This is day eighteen, so we've done eighteen out of nineteen days. Podcast in the future. I don't think people will realise as they listen to this months, years in the future. We actually recorded all these as it happened. I, I don't know if, pe- if people will appreciate that, Billy Joe. I hope they do because otherwise, will it even be worth it?
2: Oh, it'll be worth it, all right. But uh let's put it this way: um, it, it, we've been under pressure this week. That's for sure.
0: Well, this will get you in the mood. One of the songs of the summer as the World Cup final was just three days away, was blaring out on every radio station. Danny Carey's back with us to talk about it. Qualified for the World Cup. Go and compete. We'll prepare
4: and we'll go and do our best. We'll put them under pressure. I will be here as long as I feel that the people want me. The game is about being effective, being aggressive, winning the ball, getting on with the play. We'll put them under pressure.
0: I would be very confident in uh, saying without any sort of doubt that every single Irish person listening to this podcast remembers that song. It is an anthem that has uh, very much transcended generations and still gets played in the odd nightclub when they're open, that is. Hi, Danny. Hi, Rob. I tell you something, we have a a real good song here that uh, really did stand the test of time.
4: Well, I'm looking here, Rob, at a list of the the top, Five songs as chosen by Rolling Stone magazine. Like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan at number one for possibly obvious reasons. An actual Rolling Stones song, Satisfaction, at number two. Imagine by John Lennon at number three. What is the obvious omission from this list?
0: Yeah, there you go. There you go. I see where you're going with that. Yes, I agree.
4: Put 'em Under Pressure is the greatest song of all time. <laughs>
0: Careful now, you. You people could mistake this for Bono's sarcasm when we were talking about give it a, a last shot. So in this
4: case, no, no sarcasm, <laughs> no sarcasm needed. No, Bono, classic.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it was at a time too where the competition was strong. There was a lot of different musicians trying to get their, uh, get their Irish World Cup song out, and the lads. Well, they got the official one, and they nailed it.
4: Yeah, th- and this this is one of the interesting things because. Um, the, the, I suppose the, the, the tune that a lot of Irish people will recognise is the, the Horslips Jarrod Doom that riff that comes in early on and Barry Devlin of Horslips said they didn't know it was happening he said suddenly there was a World Cup song and we were on it wow <laughs> Sampling Jack Charlton sound bites was the piece of genius here. Barry Devlin, who, was, who discussed this on a, on a documentary with Joe recently, you know, points out it starts with Moira Brennan's voice. Then it's into the hard rock riff that he and Horstips were responsible for, which is also an Irish riff. And then he says, and then it goes into Jack's voice, which is, as you know, as Irish as the gasworks in Scunthorpe. <laughs> the fact that these were real Jack Charlton lines you know, that they weren't kind of cooked up is part of what makes it so so brilliant, really. And rather amusingly, I, I didn't know this until I was researching the, the Scottish World Cup song, but of course the, the chorus about we're all part of Jackie's army is a direct rip-off of the Scotland 1978 song uh, and Ali McLeod, like a direct rip-off. But, um, you know, th- this has not stopped, a, you know, a... a sometimes semi-serious campaign to make, put him under pressure, the Irish national anthem, which I would wholeheartedly endorse. Yeah, why not? One other thing I should mention, this song was, of course, produced by by Larry Mullen of U2. It had been rumoured that they were having difficulty with the football team getting the lyrics nailed down. And the story goes that Larry Mullen brought in a group of fans who were gathered outside of Windmill Lane Studios to help flesh out the chorus. And there's actually a mention on the sleeve of... windmill car park choir which i'm pretty sure was not a real choir it was probably people hanging around in the hope of seeing members of the irish football team but uh definitely check out the check out the video because um it includes mick mccarthy on drums and heading a ball while behind the drum kit chris Houghton in sunglasses tony cascarino messing with the guitar Uh, and the team swaying back and forth arm in arm singing we're all part of jackie's army which to be honest is just one step removed from flicking on lighters and bursting into neil diamond's sweet caroline oh and there's also a rare shot of frank stapleton smiling
0: (laughs) thanks daddy
4: thanks rob